And I, and I learned something in that successful people feel totally different about risk than you do. Mm. You are in, as a new entrepreneur, you are in wealth creation mode, you're risk on. Anybody who is successful and has been successful for five or more years is in a totally different mode. They're in wealth preservation mode. Hey, I have right. this money. I have this nest egg. How can I protect it? What do I need to do to make sure that I don't lose it? Hello and welcome to the Leverage 3 Podcast. This is the show that helps you leverage the talent and tactics of high performers. I'm Craig Shoemaker and today's guest is Nick Huber. Nick is a serial entrepreneur, investor, and content creator focused on the real estate and small business markets. In the last 12 months, Nick has co-founded 11 different companies, all while building a diverse portfolio of sweaty startups in real time. Nick, welcome to the show. Craig, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you here. And well, okay, I've got 50 bucks. I hear you have tomatoes. Like, can we work <laughs> out a deal? Yeah, the, uh, the internet is a wild place. And some people <laughs> think that uh, rational thinking humans would rather have 50 bucks a month for life than a million dollars cash. So it's a, it's a wild place. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that, that kind of exploded on you sort of unexpectedly a little bit, right? Yeah, every time I... Uh, I take the jokes just a step further and try to get so outrageous <laughs> that one of them's just going to whiff altogether because everybody thinks, you know, it's pretty obvious and, and so ridiculous and, and easy to spot. But um, I'm just surprised. I'm, I'm constantly surprised by how dumb the average Twitter user is. So it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of, it helps you figure out who you want to spend time talking to and basically everybody else, right? So yeah, in term... Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a weeding mechanism. Right. So in terms of like where you got started and where you are now, I mean, I, would you say that you began your, your journey in business when your dad kind of voluntold you into a commercial landscape company? Is that like where this all began? Yeah, it set me, set me down at the kitchen table as a 13-year-old, even though I didn't have my driver's license and, and showed me a profit and loss statement and a leasing schedule for some equipment. And uh, I had to mow, you know, eight commercial properties, including a shopping center, a nursing home, a movie theater, an apartment complex. And uh, I didn't want to do it and I cried and it was really hard. But <laughs> a couple months in, I was, uh, realized I was making about 40 bucks an hour while my friends were working at Subway for seven twenty-five. So uh, I got right. addicted to the hustle of making money. It was fun. Oh, I think that's incredible that he started you off that way. It wasn't just like, hey, I got this gig for you. You're going to go mow lawns. It was, here's all the mechanisms of business that you need in order to get started and kind of set it in your, your ballpark and let you run with it. Was, was that intimidating for you in the beginning? Yeah. I mean, I was a kid. I was, um, you know, the, you know, the emotional stability of a 13 year old. So I got out there mowing <laughs> my first lawn and it was, you know, 90, 90 plus degree Indiana heat in the, in the summer. And I was just used to sitting inside, you know, twiddling my thumbs, playing video games or doing whatever when I was right. uh, that age. So I, I got out there and mowed a, you know, mowed a lawn without picking up the trash first. And <laughs> 35 pieces of trash turned into 35,000 pieces of trash. And my dad pulled up and told me I had to go pick them all up. And I spent the next three hours picking up individual piece by piece because I was mowing over full paper McDonald's bags with, with happy food in them. I was just <laughs> chopping them up. So I learned, I learned pretty quickly that uh, you got to be tough. And uh, he didn't let me quit. I cried and I said, I didn't want to do it anymore. I was like, this is absurd. I'm 13. And he put me in the put me in the truck, cranked up the AC, put an ice towel on the back of my neck and said, Nick, you can, you can quit, but you're going to finish this for the next uh, three months. 
and you're going to finish the summer. We'll find somebody else, you know, in November when the grass stops growing. But you got to stick it out till then. I'm sorry. And I threw a fit and I finished it and, and kicked and screamed. But you know, when you go to when you go to college with forty thousand dollars in your bank account, uh, that's a little bit different than most, you know, seventeen yeah, year olds. That's huge. So, would mm-hmm. you say that your entrepreneurial journey started when you ended up basically firing your mom as your driver and taking on someone else? Yeah, she was charging me ten bucks an hour, but she wasn't doing anything but sitting in the truck. <laughs> and I realized really quick I could. I could pay somebody $15 an hour back then in you know, 2004 and I had 2002 actually, I could, I could pay somebody 15 bucks an hour and they would show up with their mower. <laughs> if I put fuel right. in their mower, they would drive my truck. They were, they were old enough to drive. So I hired a, a junior in high school who was 17 you know, when I was 13 and he was making 15 bucks an hour to drive me to town and mow grass. So yeah, it's, not a, it's, it's a pretty abnormal story. That's for sure. I, re- I look back even just talking about it right now, it sounds pretty ridiculous. 13-year-olds now aren't allowed to have phones or go outside and play or, or go knock on their neighbor's doors. And they're kind of in, in the bubble, in the protection bubble of their parents. And my dad yeah. had me on a 52-inch zero turn radius mower, you know, crossing, crossing four lanes of traffic as a 13-year-old. It's, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah your, your parents and, and your dad like doing that, like what an incredible gift to be able to do that. And it's yeah. interesting because you, you, you look at the, the landscape of social media and you, know, you talk about 15 year olds being in that bubble, but then at the same time, like you'll see people on social media, they're like, I'm 13 and I've got the solopreneur business and I'm just crushing it. And I'm just like, I, here I am feeling like I have to compete with you and you don't even have a driver's license yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it levels the playing field, that's for sure. I mean, just the brilliance of the, the t- you look back at the tech titans, uh, and, and when they when they got their start and Zuckerberg, you know, making deals to cut out the Winklevoss twins when he was, you know, 20 years old, that's, that's pretty insane. That's insane stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, so what are some lessons that you've learned, let's say in the past 12 to 18 months that you didn't see coming that kind of came as a surprise to you? One thing that's, I've changed my mind on, I guess, I, and, and I have this little sticker on my, on my bathroom uh, mirror every morning when I wake up to brush my teeth, it says, change your mind about something today. because I know that as I, as I get more successful, as I hire more people, as I make more decisions or you know, have failures and wins, I will you know, get more and more entrenched in my own opinion and kind of, uh, and especially since I'm on social media with 300,000 followers and people hanging on to my every word, I can, I can pretty quickly kind of become my own God and think that I, mm. you know, everything that I say is true and that I need to tell all my employees exactly what they need to do. And, and if, they, if they contradict me, tell them to just you know, shut up, sit down and do the work. I think that's a, a really dangerous thing about an entrepreneur who's had a little bit of success. So my goal is to avoid those blind spots and continue to encourage smart people to challenge me all the time and have an open mind and not get so you know hung up in my uh, opinions that I that I kind of you know filter information on what supports those things. That's that's a a very common thing that that people see and it's a common thing that I see myself falling into. I start to believe something. I start to think something is, is works a certain way. So I filter information and I. I let the stuff in that supports me and kind of agrees mm-hmm. with me. And I turn away the stuff and the people that don't. So, right. um, and, and that's a good way to, to lose pretty big in, in the big yeah. grand scheme of things if you don't do it right. Hey, do you want to get parts of these interviews that aren't available anywhere else? Well, you can join the Leverage 3 email list and get access to exclusive content just for subscribers. So go on over to leverage3podcast.com and sign up today. So what does that look like practically for you? I would imagine you have advisors and mentors and, and people around you, but 
Like, how are you making that a reality? Yeah. I mean, my, the, the, the controller at my real estate private equity company, he's helped him and I together are making decisions to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, $100 million of storage that we've bought in the last five years. Yeah. And um, we're trying to figure out what to buy, how much to pay, you know, how it's going to look. We're trying to you know, come up with a realistic underwriting scenario of you know, looking into the future of how much money a real estate portfolio might make. And I tell him often, I say, hey, look, I, I have strong opinions. I can get aggressive. I, can, you know, I, I talk with a lot of you know, charisma and loud words and it almost seem like I'm yelling and it's overwhelming. Right. If you disagree with me, come at me and come at me hard and fierce and put me in my place. And it happened in 2022, interest rates were flying. And I was like, we need to just buy, we need to buy. Our investors are you know, hungry for deals. All the deals we bought are doing phenomenally. And he went on vacation for two weeks. He comes back, <laughs> he comes back and we had three new deals under contract to buy. Deals that I negotiated and, and sent the offer price on and they accepted. And he, and he you know, says, Nick, you know, we need to have a call. And he gets on the call and says, you're not going to like this, Nick. I, think, I don't think we should buy any of these deals. I think we're paying too much for all three of these properties. And at first I was taken back and I got offensive and, or de- defensive. And mm-hmm. you know, wh- what do you mean? Why not? Like, tell me why. And he challenged me and he challenged me and he continued to challenge me. And he was right. And we dropped the deals and we didn't buy them. And I am so thankful today that we didn't buy those deals. And so, yeah, yeah I have a five to seven people and that, and that list is growing every day as more and more people you know, I get a look into their mind. I see how they think. The people on my team, and right now in my career, I'm just kind of a assembler of talent. That's what I can, you know, consider mm-hmm. my main job right now. I'm trying to get as much talent as possible in the doors with me. So my my trusted list of people that I know can make good decisions, that I know think about things the right way, they've proven to me that they're smart folks. They have a green light all the time to call me out. They have a green light all the time to tell me that I'm wrong. And if they do, then you know, they they got generally got pretty good reasons. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so those are your peers and your contemporaries. What kind of questions are you asking your mentors or the people who are a couple steps ahead of you right now? Um, advice, is a, advice is a funny thing. And, you know, people... Now, this is going to come out all wrong, but I'm going to give kind of a contrary, <laughs> contrarian answer here. Okay. When I was 25, I went to wealthy real estate investors, went to the richest people I knew, successful entrepreneurs, my you know, mentor in college, my entrepreneurship professor, one of my entrepreneurship professors at Cornell. And I told him I want, what I wanted to do. Hey, I want to buy this property. We're going to build a building on it. Um, I, you know, I went to all the people I trusted. And eight out of 10 of them told me that I was, it was a bad idea and I shouldn't do it. Hmm. And I learned something and we did the deal. We built the building for you know, all in for $2.9 million, worth $11 million today. It's been a light changing amount of money for me personally. We bought out all of our investors. It's been insane. And I look back and I would have probably told myself not to do that deal. If I, if I right now, in my situation right now, I was looking at my right. 25-year-old knowing self. You know. yeah. Knowing what I know now about risk, about the debt, what that was, you know, the, people don't know that from 2015 to 2017, the Fed was increasing interest rates just like they are now. It's a ste- it was a step interest rates all the way up. I would have said, no, no way, Nick. A recession's on the way. Like we're horrible time to take on a 70% LTV loan on a new development. You don't even know what you're doing. You have no experience. You don't know how to raise this money. You don't know how bank debt works. You don't know about the risk. This underwriting pro forma that you have modeled is all wrong. It was all wrong. Don't do this deal. And I, and I learned something in that 
successful people, people who are more successful than you, feel totally different about risk than you do. Hmm. You are in, as a new entrepreneur, you are in wealth creation mode, you're risk on. Anybody who is successful and has been successful for five or more years is in a totally different mode. They're in wealth preservation mode. Hey, I have this money. I have this nest egg. How can I protect it? What do I need to do to make sure that I don't lose it? Because the only thing that could go wrong in my life right now is I lose this money. That's my situation right now. (laughs) Like I'm in that situation all of a sudden. Hey, we bought $100 million worth of storage. It's going really well. My businesses are thriving. My personal balance sheet has exploded. What can I do to not mess this up? You know what I mean? So, so that's just a, a long way of saying like, be really careful about what advice you get and understand that all the advice you get comes from a totally different lens. Yeah. Yeah. You totally def- different set of situations and just a, a different world. Right. Yeah. That context can be completely different. And so I, I, I guess it's interesting. Maybe, maybe we should be looking to get advice, get uh, experience from people who are at the, all different stratas. Like not only saying like you're saying, look at someone who's two steps ahead, but they also have perspective and experience that, you know, is only achieved through what they've, that they've done. And this is a really tough, I'm kind of speaking out of both sides of my mouth now, because you go to your people who are in your exact same situation and say, Hey, should I buy this building? Should I build this storage facility? They'll be like, Nick, what are you talking about? I have no freaking idea. (laughs) What? what? Right. Why are you asking me? Of course, I don't know. There is no answer. So advice, get, get advice from everybody. Like I'll get, I'll get advice from my 83-year-old you know, grandfather who never took a risk in his life and built an amazing life for his kids who then built an amazing life for my kids. And I'll get advice from successful folks and I'll get advice from the pe- person sitting at the bar with me on a, on a happy hour that I'm just chatting with. Right. And I'm filtering all that advice through the lens at which it's coming from. Obviously, Ray Dalio talks about like weighting the advice based on what the person has done. Obviously, if I'm talking to a billionaire, I'm going to weight that advice a little heavier than if I'm talking to a homeless person on the side of the street. Right. But I'm not too stubborn to know that everybody can't teach me something. I need to look at it with an open mind, I'm filtering it, the information's coming in. I'm using my bullshit meter to filter what works, what doesn't, what makes sense to me, what I think I could apply to me and kick out the rest. People talk about business books all the time. I'm reading all these different business books, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, what, did you, what are you taking from it? Like, what are you applying to your life? Are you doing the work to apply the principles, the structures, the you know, decisions, the situations? Are you doing the work to apply that stuff to your life? You can read a book and if you agree with the entire book, you're, you're reading a book the wrong way. Because right. not everything, not every book, every sentence in every book is going to apply to you. You're filtering information. You're not just highlighting, oh yes, highlighting, oh yes, highlighting, oh yes. You're like, oh well, this situation was a lot different for this person. How does it apply to me? What were the different variables? How do they think about risk? All these different things. Yeah. Okay. So on that real estate deal, why were you right? And why were the eight out of the 10 people wrong? Like, what was it about how you executed that allowed you to pull it off? So I think to do anything really well, you need uh, entrepreneurial to build a big business, a good business to make millions of dollars. You need three things. You need operational chops, number one, that's the most important part. You need to actually be able to run a company to manage people, to hire, to fire. And real estate is a small business. Like people think real estate's passive. No, it's a, it's a small business. You're running a small business just like everything else. It's a, it's a small business disguised as a building. So number one, you need operational capital. Number two, you need a network. And number three, you need you know, money, cash capital. <laughs> and um, we had all three of those things because we had 
grinded and and built a company and built a built a personal balance sheet. We had 500 grand of our own money. Mm-hmm. We knew how to manage. We knew how to hire. We knew how to delegate. We had experience with it. Obviously, we had a lot to learn. And then, and then we pounded our network to get out and find some other investors to go out and do some things. And because we had the other two, the network kind of followed those. The, the network's always last to come. You get the operational chops, you get the experience, and you get the personal capital. And then the network kind of flows after that. Hmm. But we had all three. And when, once we got that building open, um, we just ran a good business and we kept the property clean. We answered the phone in the middle of the night. We rented units, did what we needed to do to you make did the that work. deal work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now you're in a position where you are a co-owner, seed investor. Like I, I don't know exactly how it, it plays out mm-hmm. in, in 11 different companies. Mm-hmm. So it, does that include... And just to clarify, not all, of them, not all of them are started in the last 11 months. I think it's six or seven in the last 11 months that, you know, okay. Bolt Storage is from 2017. Um, support Shepherd. I'm a partner in. That was you know 2020. Right. You know, RE cost eggs over a year old. So um, all these companies are varying levels of uh, you know when and, and how they were started. Yeah. But I'm I'm a founding partner in ten of them. Okay. Support Shepherd. I came on after it was started. The rest of them I founded with operational partners. Um, Bolt Storage. I was actually I was the operational partner. Me and my business partner did it. But the rest of them. Um, that I'm starting now, the, the business brokerage, the, the web development, the SEO, the um, pay, you know, pay-per-click performance marketing, the cost seg, the mm-hmm. pay, uh, performance uh, or the pay, uh, casualty property and casualty insurance company. Right. All those I'm, I'm starting with specialists. I'm finding people who really know that business. They know how to build teams and I'm getting them into my company and testing a lot of what they can do. Because if you notice all these companies, I actually need those services myself. <laughs> right. I'm getting in, I'm testing them. I'm seeing if they're they're legitimate. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing the interview process while watching them work. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we negotiate a deal to found a company together and um, it all kind of trickles down. It, it all kind of trickles down from the personal brand. Okay. So many different directions I want to go with this. Uh, first of all, like you, you have the opportunity to work with a, a lot more operators that say most people do. I mean, like there's other people who do the types of things that you're doing, but you're seeing it mm-hmm. daily in, in a different way. So what separates a good operator from a great one? Delegation, period. Um, hmm. Generally, generally, two things. It's sales. The, the fact they can, they're well-spoken, they're charismatic, they, they have energy. People want to follow them. People want to buy from them. People want them on their team. And, then they, and they have experience delegating. They know how to build teams. They know how to get other people to do work in exchange for money. And, uh, and they can build an organization that way. So uh, the, per, the best operator in the world, in my opinion, is a master salesperson and a master delegator. And when it comes to delegation, if we break that down a little bit further, there's two levels of delegation. There's step one is just tell somebody else what to do. That's delegating tasks. And a lot of businesses can grow to five, 10 employees and millions of dollars of a, you know, profit a year sometimes with one person making the decisions, the owner, the person, and everybody else doing tasks. Right. Well, the, the, the big thing, if you want to grow a company that can, that can make money while you sleep or grow beyond you or scale up to some degree, you have to be able to do the second level of delegation, which is decisions. You're, you're delegating the ability to make decisions to your, to your employees. And that's the uncomfortable hard part that comes after a lot of uh, practice and, and uncomfortable situations and, right. and failures and, and so <laughs> on. So, so it, do you see people are held back by this? Is it communication skills? Is it ego? Is it inexperience? I mean, all of it, like what do you see? You you mean delegation specifically? Yeah. When people struggle with that aspect of it, what's holding them back? 
delegation, the funny thing about delegation is that there's absolutely zero practice in life. Hmm. Um, you, don't, you don't get any practice delegating in school. Your English teacher's not going to tell you <laughs> right. to go find somebody else to do your paper for you. Right. They're not going to do that. You don't get any practice in sports. You're not, your coach is not saying, hey, here's your workout schedule. Why don't you go find somebody else to run these uh, circuits for you and lift these weights for you. Right. Um, you don't use, you just get zero practice. It's totally uncomfortable. There's no practice in, even in college. So the art of managing other people and telling what other people to do is a extremely rare skill that comes one way. It comes through practice. It's not a science. Delegating is not a science. It's an art. It's a muscle. Your, de- your ability to get, delegate is a muscle. And the only way to get that muscle bigger is to practice. So I practiced when I hired that 15 year old to get in my driver's seat and I told him what to do. Right. Super uncomfortable. Then at my moving and storage company, it was movers and drivers and warehouse people. And then it was, you know, delegate the marketing to an actual marketer, let them start to make the decisions, do whatever. Um, and, and like, if you want to build muscle, if you want to lift weights, are you going to watch the new Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, show <laughs> on TV and, and build, you know, spend a bunch of time building a spreadsheet and, you know, make your plan and study the muscles and study the human body? No, you're going to go to the gym and pick up the that weight. That obviously worked for me. I mean, that approach, you know, <laughs> you can tell it's paid off. <laughs> <laughs> There's varying levels of all this stuff, you know what I mean? So right. none, of us, none of us are, uh, are experts, but I just think that uh, there's a lot of analysis paralysis. Like hmm. there's a high co- correlation between brilliance, a very smart person, and their, their, you know, their drive and desire to become an entrepreneur. Right. And when you get really smart people, they're data, they're data oriented. They want to have the data. They want to have uh, a cause and effect. They want to see the inputs before they make a decision and output. But in business, there is, there's, there's no way to make decisions with complete information. Right. Ever, especially at the beginning. Yeah. Largest companies in the world, Fortune 500 companies, they have CEOs that are making co- decisions on incomplete information. Now, the better the data is, the better the decision can get. And obviously, you test and you iterate. But when you're making decisions early on as an entrepreneur, especially when it comes to delegation, there is no playbook. There's no turn the page back three pages and find the answers in the, in the textbook if mm-hmm. you're studying for a high school exam. Right. So what you have is uh, a lot of these brilliant folk who are very, very, very competent and high IQs, they just get overloaded and, 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 it, and it messes with your brain when you got to, for the first time in your life, make decisions without it, without sometimes, without any information. Right. Without, without anything. I got, I got yeah. very, very little information. We know there's a hundred factors that are going to affect this. I have data on two of them and I got to make a gut decision. Yeah. Nothing harder than that. Well, and, and so that kind of plays into the next thing I want to ask you, like you tend to have this history of not, I, I, I don't know. I, would you say you're more of a buyer or a builder when it comes to your acquisitions and your, your partnerships? I, um, right now I have a competitive advantage in that I have access to phenomenal talent through my network. That's an un- underrated part of Twitter in that, yes, I ha- everybody knows I have the customers. I have distribution. I can sell to my audience that's on Twitter. Right. Yeah. You know, 450 million people every six months are going to see my tweets. 3,000 are going to listen to my podcast. 100,000 are going to listen you know, read my newsletter. And 500 people a month are going to pay me for something. Right. You know, the distribution yeah. funnels its way down to actually getting money from customers. Right. So what people don't understand is that people are seeing what I'm building and I'm building in public. I'm sharing everything. And so I have a lot of high caliber people, operators that I never would have gotten to meet. 
that are bought in. They know what I'm up to. They, they, right. they see the power of the distribution. They see the power of the personal brand and they want to come work for me and work with me and help me build because we both can you know, achieve more if we're working together. So I think I, I'm, to answer your question directly, I'm more of a builder right now. Okay. I'm starting companies. But I know that the evolution for me over the next five years will be the shift will be the shift from building from the ground up to buying companies, installing competent management, making a few tweaks, okay. and, and letting those companies grow. That's, that's kind of where I see my trajectory going, okay. if I can do it well. Yeah, because I was thinking like there's so much operational inertia you have to overcome to start something from the ground up, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you have positions spread out through you know, 11 different companies and obviously Bolt Storage and in your personal brand, I would imagine gets the, the bulk of your attention. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I was just wondering if there was a, a strategic calculus that you were doing saying, okay, well, I'm going to work with these people to, to go ground up. Because I've heard you talk about the, the, the cycles that people go through. The first two months is awesome. Then you get to the three and the six months mark and things just go nasty and bad. And then once you get over that hump, you're kind of there. And so, yeah, I just, is it, it been an outpouring of the way you've done business or has it just been like, this is where I'm best at right now and that's why I'm focusing on it? Operational inertia is a great word. Starting a company from nothing is very, very hard because uh, it, a, a company is a snowball and it gets momentum and it starts to build upon itself and you're starting with nothing. So packing that initial ball together and getting the, the core team to build a service, to offer that service, to bring in the customers you're you're, you don't have a chicken or an egg. Like it's, <laughs> is it a chicken or an egg problem? You have neither. Right. You don't have the customers and you don't have the people to offer the business, offer the service. If you buy a company, you have the people to offer the service, offer the service and you have the customers, you have them both. It's about growing both those things. Um, but it's a risk thing for me. Like mm. I, have never, I have never taken a company from five to $10 million valuation to, to 50 to $100 million valuation. I've never done that. I don't know how to do it. Um, I'm getting a lot of advice and people are starting to call me and say, hey, Nick, it's not that different. You can do X, Y, and Z. And I'm starting to talk to these people who have done this stuff before to get a feel for it. Right. Um, but frankly, I, my life has changed an insane amount in the last three years. Three years ago, if you sat me down three years ago in 2020 and said, Nick, I was in, I was in dorms still moving boxes when COVID hit. Like I was, I was in that operational business still. I wasn't I did. It was my it was two I didn't businesses. I had real estate and had that. Recent. So three years in three years, my personal balance sheet, my net worth has nearly ten xed. Yeah. My distribution on Twitter has ten xed for sure. Three thousand, no, hundred x, three thousand to three hundred thousand people. Right. And my life has changed exponentially fast. I now I I got into a little bit of mode of like, hey, wealth preservation mode. What could I do possibly to mess this up? What could happen in this world where all of a sudden Nick Huber, my personal finances, my empire is at risk? There's real estate debt. There's all my floating debt. There's, you know, there's certain, you know, black swan events that could take me down. One of those is buying a business for five or $10 million with a, with a, with a slug (laughs) of bank debt that I'm, that I'm personally guaranteeing. Right. So part of it's comfort level, right? I need, I need a, a, I need a, bigger and better personal balance sheet before I'm comfortable going after a, a you know, one to $10 million company hmm. that I can buy. You know, you bring something up that, that I think is interesting. I, I've had a couple conversations with people in the last few weeks about 
how COVID and the, the opportunity for people to be at home and paying more attention to social media really helped a lot of accounts kind of explode. And I'm curious, do you feel like that had a, an, an effect on you being able to build your brand and, you know, by extension, your companies? I don't know if I agree with that statement. I mean, look at the NBA, the NBA, uh, the, the ratings fell off a cliff when COVID hit and everybody was sitting at home. People didn't watch <laughs> the games for some reason. Right. You know, it, and there, there's a full generation before me that are way bigger than me. I'm talking about the, the Ty Lopez, the Tony Robbins, the Grant Cardones, the, mm-hmm. the influencers, the Tim Ferriss, the, the influencers way before me that are way bigger. You can go back even further to the, to the sales guys that everybody knows about and quotes and Zig talks Ziglar about. And even Warren, yeah, and Warren yeah. Buffett, how he, the, the ultimate you know, personal brand is Warren Buffett. Are you kidding me? Like the way he sits <laughs> in front of a microphone and talks and rips these little zingers and sound bites. And he's the, he is um, the ultimate brand builder. So I don't know that it's a, a new phenomenon. And like a couple communities developed and thrived on Twitter for sure. The, the real estate, uh, Twitter, the small business communities, but um, it's it's relatively small part of the world. Like I I walk around and do whatever I want in every town, and and rarely do I have anybody know who the heck Nick Huber is. Right. Yeah, I, I would imagine that would be strange if if that did begin to happen on a regular basis. So I, all right, I want to yeah. talk about a couple of your your actual companies. Uh, I, this might be a silly question, but I want to talk about Ari Kosseg for a second. I know you've done the elevator pitch on this a million times, but just in case someone's following along and they have no idea what this is, kind of tell us a little bit about that It's a that hard company. pitch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I tell my friends on the golf course that it's an engineering firm for real estate investors and 99% of them don't ask a follow-up question because they know that they're... <laughs> but I'm no, not, a, I don't a cost segregation... <laughs> yeah, a, a cost segregation study is, is, a, is, a, is a way to build a depreciation schedule for an asset that you buy that is a building. When, you, when I buy a computer mouse, I write this off as a deduction year one, $12.99 or $29.99. It goes right into my books as a deduction. Year one, I write that off against my taxes as a deduction. When I buy a million dollar building, a self-storage facility, the IRS does not let me go and give them an, a, a receipt for a $1 million <laughs> building and deduct it from my taxes. They don't let that happen, unfortunately. But there are parts of that building. So it's deducted over a 40-year time frame for a commercial building. But there are parts of the building that are different. The IRS says, oh, actually, windows, those, are not, they don't, those don't have a 40-year lifespan. Outside, you know, ground improvements, those need replaced more often. The HVAC, the, the hot tub on, on, the, on the back deck of your Airbnb, all the removable walls of a self-storage facility, that stuff has a shorter lifespan so I can depreciate it quicker. Meaning I need somebody somewhere to come in an engineering firm to, to pull this building apart and, and tell me where the costs are. I paid a million bucks. How much is assignable to the land? That can't be depreciated at all. I can never write that off. The basis stays the same forever. How much is attributable to the driveways, to the concrete? How much is attributable to the doors? That's what cost, RA CostSeg does. We have 26 folks, 14 of them are engineers. We get on a, a Zoom FaceTime with a real estate investor. We will walk around a property. Then we'll make a CAD drawing of the building and we'll pull out all the costs and we'll measure the square footage of each different type of material used in the building process. And we'll basically give you a report back that you can then give your CPA and figure out your depreciation schedule for your assets. Now in 2017, bonus depreciation became 100%. And, and a lot of the stuff that had under 15 year lifespan in the eyes of the IRS could be depreciated year one 
Um, so we pull that stuff out and it's generally 10 to 30% of the purchase price of this bonus depreciable, you know, shorter lifespan stuff. And so it's super high value, super high leverage to do this work for real estate investors so that they can deduct their asset quicker and get more tax deduction. Okay. It's the best I can do. <laughs> wow, it's great. I mean, yeah. Okay. So I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm a bonehead podcast host. You know, I help people build courses. I'm in technology, all that kind of stuff. But there's two things when you describe this business that stick out to me. And so I'm curious about how you deal with this within the business. So number one, you have that law that was passed in 2017 that changes the rules that allows you to do this at scale for a longer period of time for, for buildings. And number two, you have this uh, competitive distinction of being able to say, instead of sending someone out to do this in person, you're going to give someone a tablet, smartphone, whatever, they're going to do it in FaceTime and make that happen. So number one, what's stopping your competitors from using FaceTime and just meeting you at the gates for that competitive distinction? And how do you guard against changes in laws when you've built up a business based off of these, these conditions? Yeah, I'm a, everybody loves recurring revenue. Everybody loves long-term sticking power of a business. Everybody loves, you know, scalability and, you know, long, just long-term security of a company. Mm -hmm. What I love is founding Ari Kosseg 12 months ago, and it's, it's a $10 million company now. You value it at five times EBITDA. So yeah, there's downsides. Of course, there's downsides. The downsides scare off a lot of other operators. They scare off a lot of people. Oh, I don't ever want to do cost segs. There's, there's huge risk in, when it comes to um, you know, the tax code. Hmm. But bonus depreciation has gone up. It's gone down. And what happens is just the value, the, the purchase price required to make a cost seg worth it moves. Hmm. If you're buying a $10 million building, a cost seg was worth it if there's no depreciation, right. if there's no bonus depreciation at all. Yeah. So these, these studies have been around forever. And it's just like that original storage business that we founded where we watched our competitors walk around with clipboards. They were walking around with clipboards, marking clipboards when LTE iPhones with Google Sheets were available. <laughs> right. Why are people not always on the cutting edge? I don't know, but mm. that's what entrepreneurs do. Like I'm not, not going to come in and shake up and, and revolutionize an industry and try to take out taxi cabs with a new app where you click and order a car. Right. I'm going to just make a business that exists a little bit better and more efficient. So while our competitors are charging three and five grand for cost segs, we're charging one and $2,000 for cost segs. And you're that's making pretty, it up on volume. A, yeah. And we're making it up on volume and we have engineers hired in Columbia, you know, not only, you know, our, some of the engineers are in the States, management teams in the States, but yeah, we're, we're innovating in a lot of ways in that business that, that makes it a, a very attractive product for our customers. And it shows, right. I mean, we've done, we're coming up on a thousand cost segs that we've done. And uh, we started the company in May of 2022. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. So let, let's talk a little bit about this, this worldwide workforce. And, and you've, you've talked about this a, a few times on other shows, but I, just tell me a little bit about some of the stories that you've been able to have firsthand encounter of, of the fact that people's lives are changing because work is being more globally distributed. I have a theory that the in the United States, people's lives are getting so good and there's just such a vast quality of life improvement that there's simply not enough people in the United States to do all the work required that the Americans need, basically. In America, we need all this work done. We're already having trouble with labor when it comes to maintaining and 
you know, building, cleaning our physical world. But we also have a lot of tasks that are, you know, jobs that people don't necessarily want or need or are trained to do that make Americans' lives better. And they can be done from the other side of the world. And Fortune 500 companies have been doing this for 15 years. Since the internet, you know, since T1, you know, line was laid all over the Philippines, <laughs> right. the, 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 the companies have been doing this. Small businesses, it blows people's mind when all of a sudden a small business can use one of my firms, supportshepherd.com, to find an employee that speaks great English, that's loyal, that's hardworking, that's competent for $5 an hour in the Philippines. And all of a sudden, instead of having two $50,000 a year call center employees that are you know, at their houses in North Carolina and Chicago, I, it, for the same exact price, I can have seven, seven or eight trained reps and I can have 24-7 call support at a self-storage facility. That's mine. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, it it's mind-blowing. So, so I, yeah, I hired my first employee overseas in 2021. And on the interview, Support Shepherd brought me three candidates. I hired all three of them. I was blown away. <laughs> Hold on. I, I can get these people for $5 an hour. Come on in. Let's go. We're doing this. <laughs> I'll find stuff for you to do. <laughs> I, yeah. And, and true entrepreneurs, like we know how hard it is to find people who want to work, let alone are skilled and you know, care about their job and right. don't complain all the time and call you every six months for a raise and take you know, six sick days a month. Um, so it's, it's just a... a it's part of my flywheel, right? Every company that I start has the same playbook. I'm, they're, they're customers of each other. Every company is going to use WebRun to, to build its website. It's going to use AdRhino to run its ads. It's going to use Bold SEO to start the link building and domain authority. It's going to use Support Shepherd to build you know, its team over in Latin America and in, Phil, in, in the Philippines. So it's the, sim, it's the same playbook. Like People are like, Nick, how are you starting six companies all in the last eight months? Well, they're not all that different when you really think about it. Mm. You know, they got a website, they got a CRM, we're using Airtable, we have a Slack set up, we have email addresses set up for the teams, we know how to take payments, we set up a Stripe account, we have the same online banking platform where I'm looking at all of them. We have the same recruiting firm that finds our employees. We have the same, you know, it's, it's uh, the synergies are real, so. Right, so what do you do when there's like conflicts? Cause I know, uh, is it, so, uh, I'm forgetting the name. So your web development company, obviously they're, they do web stuff, but then, AdRhino is does some web development stuff. So like when you have companies that have different needs, are they just basically bidding out to them like they would anyone else, but they're looking to them first or how do you handle that? Yeah, we have a rev share and referral network in, internally. And okay. actually every company does different things. So AdRhino will do Google ad management. They're, they're advertising, they're, they're managing ad spend on Google and on Facebook, Instagram, across social media, Bing and so on. They're doing retargeting, email campaign, marketing is coming. So that company does the marketing oversight. WebRun does web development, but it also does SEO work because SEO is half structure, half link building. So bold right. SEO, all it does is build links. Bold is mm -hmm. going to build, uh, build links, backlinks to ra raise your domain authority because that's still, depending on who you talk to, it's still 60 to 70% of SEO. Get your, structured, get your site structured the right way and then build links because Google recognizes and ranks higher websites that are linked to by other high authority websites. Right. So yeah, they all, it, it's a, it's a lot of synergy. Cool. All right. So, um, when, when you're looking, kind of looking at operators again, what concepts tend to elude people? So we talked about delegation, but, and, and that's kind of like their superpower, 
But what, what do you see as blind spots that people have as they're trying to build and run these businesses? You know, you always have a fear of just the, there's one of two ways that an employee can let you down or a partner. There's one of two ways. Number one is a competence way. Like they're literally just not good enough at their job. They're not doing their job. They're not adding the value required in the partnership or the employee company relationship. And the second problem is a, is a moral dilemma. Like they are not morally acting the right way. Mm-hmm. They're untrustworthy, they're lying, and they're stealing. Every single problem when it comes to people, and there's an argument that every single problem in the world is a people problem. Definitely every problem in business is a people problem, and they all come down to one of those two things. Mm. Period. The person's either not acting right. And this is the same with a customer. A customer can literally, (laughs) a customer can be incompetent. A customer can be incompetent. And a customer can be morally abusive and rude and entitled to a company. Right. So this is all human relations is one of those two problems. And in business, it's no other. So if you can avoid those two, if you can find a competent person who's trustworthy and morally sound. And the second one, that's, that's like a that's something you learn over time. That trust is built over time. Mm. So what, what I do with my operators is I slowly give them more. Slowly, slowly, slowly give them more. And every delegator should do that. You hire an employee. They come to you with problems. Instead of just saying, get out of my way solving this problem, I'm going to ask questions and get a look into their mind. See how they mm. think about problems. See how they think about decisions. And the whole time, A, I'm delegating the decision back to them so they have to go do it and it's not my problem anymore. But B, I get a look into the mind of that employee and I get to start thinking about how they think about things. Right. And that's the most valuable part. It's like not only do I start to delegate and those people start to do work for me, but I also get to judge that employee like, hey, how good, how, how are they thinking about this? They're talking to me. How are they thinking about it? How competent are they at making decisions? How likely are they to make future decisions well? Oh, they're doing pretty well. I'm going to give them another one. I'm give them another decision. And okay, yeah, they got one bank account access. They can access one of my bank accounts with $33,000 in it. Okay, so, so morally, that's my risk. That's right. my risk morally when I hire an operator, funding every bank account with 30 to 50 grand. So if they're going to try to rip me off, that's about all they can get. <laughs> Stop there. But if they, if, they, if they work with me for years and I see that they are honest and they're trustworthy and they're competent, then I'll give them access to all the bank accounts and help them start to manage some other things. Now, I have, I have a theory that the more competent and the more, uh, you know, intelligent and hardworking a person is, the less likely they are to be mm. morally defunct. Right. They're not, I think that the lazier somebody is and the less competent they are, the more likely they are to be a liar and a thief because they're, they got to, they got to catch it up somewhere. You know, yeah. they're making promises that aren't, People who are really freaking good at life have no reason to lie and steal and cheat because they can get ahead without doing those things. Right. Why, why would I risk my... If, if I'm good at what I do and I can add a ton of value, why would I risk my reputation to lie and steal and cheat even one person? Why would I do that? It puts everything else at risk. But if I'm actually talking a bigger game than I am and I actually can't do what I'm saying I can do and I'm not that competent, I'm not building companies and we're not making money, then you got to take a little bit of shortcuts. Sometimes things get really stressful. People are way more likely to lie and steal and cheat when they're in high pressure, you know, intense situation where there's no way out and they've dug themselves a hole. So surrounding yourself with really competent people is, is the best way to fend off the, the morally incompetent folks. That's awesome. You've shared an incredible amount of stuff and I I thank you so much for, for hanging out with me. One of the things that I like to do at the end of each show is leave people with three 
takeaways, actionable tactics that they can, they can run with. So if you were to like boil down three things that you think people should consider, what would you give them? So I'd say um, number one is that entrepreneurship is way harder than it looks online. I think a, a, a problem with entrepreneurship culture is that so many people get into entrepreneurship and they get on the internet and they follow me, they follow all these people who are way ahead of them doing business at a really high level and they make it and, and all of us, like you need to understand that all of us are making it sound easy for a reason. We're building a personal brand. <laughs> right. This is not easy. This is not easy. As an entrepreneur, you're in uncomfortable situations all the time. You know, those uncomfortable situations when something crazy happens at work, something bad happens at work. Oh God, this is going to cost the company money. What do you do as an employee? You pass it up the chain. <laughs> That's right. The bigger, the bigger the problem, the bigger the problem, the more likely it's going to go all the way up to the chain to the person who owns your company. Right. And it's their job to solve it. So yes, the person who owns your company might live in the $3 million house. They might hang out at the golf club. But when the big, big problems come, they are responsible for the actions of their company. And that's a scary, scary place to be when a lot of stuff goes wrong and nobody on the internet talks about the stuff that goes wrong. Nobody talks about having to lay off a partner or lay off an employee who was your childhood best friend and stood up in your wedding hmm. four weeks earlier. Nobody talks about him crying in your arms because he doesn't know what the hell he's going to do. Nobody talks about that side of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Nobody talks about one of your employees driving your own, your box truck down the road and going on Sturrow Drive in Boston when the, when the box truck's 11 foot tall and the freaking overpass is nine foot tall oh and they gosh. rip the top off of it. And the whole truck is totaled and there's customer shit all over the road. Nobody <laughs> talks about the feeling that you get inside your chest when you get that call. Yeah. You've got a call that a family member's sick. You've got a call that maybe your girlfriend or boyfriend is going to dump you. you. You've had things hurt you. And that's how it feels when your company gets injured and your balance sheet gets injured and you're going to lose a lot of money and your reputation is tarnished. That's how it feels often. So if you don't like those uncomfortable situations, those stressful situations where every call that an employee, every time an employee calls you, they're calling you because they need you to solve one of their problems. If you don't like that situation, then entrepreneurship is not for you. You talked to me five years ago, everybody should be an entrepreneur. It's for everybody. It's, yeah. it's the path to financial freedom. And that's what, that's what social media influencers do. They get online and they say, everybody should be an entrepreneur. It's so easy. Take my course. I'm going to teach you how to make this money. It's unbelievable. Nobody talks about the hardship. Nobody talks about how difficult it is to own a company. So understand that and understand that you can use a lot of these things, a lot of the delegation, a lot of the management techniques, and a lot of the other things to make a lot of money for a company, like period. Right. You can think like an entrepreneur at work and there's, a, and there's one way to make good money at work and that's get really good at your job. The only way to make phenomenal money at work is to make other people good at their job. Right. If you can manage other people, you can get phenomenally wealthy working for somebody else. And when the big problems happen, you pass them up the chain. That's, a, that's not a bad option for a lot of people. So... It's a, it's a long way of saying this stuff is a lot harder. This stuff is a lot harder than everybody makes it sound and seem online. I'll just give one more because we're running out of time. Yeah. Start really small. If I, if I was hanging out on Twitter when I started that moving and storage company making 
you know, $300 a day by working my butt off hauling boxes up and down spiral staircases at, you know, on Bay Street Road at, at Boston University. <laughs> Bay State Road. If, if I was on Twitter following people who are making multis millions of dollars, I never would have made it. I'd have tried to skip steps. I would have gotten disheartened and I would have given up and I'd have, and I'd have had to go get a job. If you try to start entrepreneurship on third base, it's a sure way to fail. Mm. We're all following entrepreneurs online again. We're following them all that have made it and they're rich and they're successful and they're flying around their airplanes and they're having fun. Right. If we try to start there or if we even, even if we try to skip steps, people don't understand it's a 10-year journey. Business is about momentum. If we try to skip the steps and, and we just constantly looking at this massive goal, we're, st- we're setting these massive goals that are unattainable. And we're idolizing Elon Musk and Steve Jobs that tell us, oh, it's all about hiring amazing people and having an amazing idea. That is the, that is the most you know, unapplicable advice that an entrepreneur can get when they don't have any capital, they don't have any experience, they don't have any network. You're building those three things. Your first business is a lot less about money. It's a lot less about changing the world. It's a lot more about building the experience, building up your personal balance sheet, getting some money in the bank. And, and building a network of, of people who know how to operate companies, people who could work for you, people who could invest in you. So start really small and understand that business is about momentum and it's a five or 10 year game. The first seven years in business, I didn't have a whole lot to show for it, honestly. Mm. Took a lot of risk, solved a lot of problems and done it, dealt with a lot of stress. And my friends who went to work for companies after college were richer than me and working less than me. Seven years into this game. People don't know that. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. Now, one of the easiest ways that we can stay in touch is that if you're watching on YouTube, please like this episode and subscribe to the channel if you'd like. And if you're listening to the audio version, rating on your favorite podcast app would mean the absolute world to me. So I'm Craig Shoemaker, and I'll see you again here soon on the Leverage 3 Podcast.